Since the dawn of time, we have looked up at the night sky in wonderment. And as we did, a deep black sea of stars stared back, almost as if it was beckoning us to set a course on its uncharted frontier. Here's a bit of a fun fact for you all. Astronomy is the oldest of the natural sciences. With its inception dating back to 1000 BCE, humanity has long sought to understand the mysteries of our ever-expanding universe. Although it did take over 5,000 years for us to make any real progress on this quest. Between the Cold War and the space race, the USSR and United States pushed each other to the furthest limit that mankind has ever seen. And in 1969, we finally set foot on the moon. It was one small step for man, but one giant leap for mankind. Since Commander Neil Armstrong first proclaimed those famous words, we have continued to make leaps and bounds in terms of intragalactic travel and our general understanding of the cosmos. But even still, one question remains, are we alone? There may be as many as 100 quintillion Earth-like planets in our universe, each teeming with their own potential to support extraterrestrial life. But even so, we have yet to discover the existence of such a life form. The skeptic in me nags that this is because we are truly alone in our existence, but my logical side begs me to see reason. Based on sheer probability alone, it's incredibly unlikely that life doesn't exist somewhere out there. And maybe it's closer than we think. I'm Courtney Hayes, and you're listening to Haunts. Stay tuned. Nestled into the woodlands of northern Maine sits the Allagash Wilderness Waterway, a 92-mile-long system of streams, rivers, and lakes that serve as a wildlife habitat and recreational site. As you can imagine, the Allagash Wilderness is incredibly popular among outdoor enthusiasts. Between fishing, camping, and a handful of scenic tours, there really isn't much that the area doesn't have to offer, which is more or less exactly why. The Allagash Wilderness annually hosts approximately 3,000 guests during the summer months alone. But why are we talking about it on this podcast? Sure, the Allagash Wilderness is beautiful and serene, but is it haunted? Well, to be honest, maybe so. Given the theories relating to flowing waters and their energetic connection to paranormal phenomena, I wouldn't be surprised if there was something ghostly lurking in those woods. But as you may have guessed, ghosts are not the subject of this week's episode. No, instead, we are talking about a simple camping trip out in the Allagash Wilderness that took place in August of 1976. It was supposed to be a relaxing trip. Twin brothers Jack and Jim Weiner, along with their college buddies Chuck Rack and Charles Foltz, had it all planned out. They had chartered a bush plane to fly them out to the wilderness area, where they would spend about two weeks camping, fishing, and taking in the great outdoors. A little R&R, &R, and a bit of time spent in good company, was all they were after. 
But just four days in, the trip would prove to be a bit more than they bargained for. In the words of Aaron Mankey, context is everything. So before we dive headfirst into a story about UAPs and alien abductions, I think we first need a bit of context on what a UAP even is. You see, the crafts that most of us would call UFOs are recognized by the U.S. government as unidentified aerial phenomena, or UAPs for short. This new, not-so-improved name was coined back in 2020, along with the establishment of a government task force under the same moniker. Now, UAPs are typically defined by a distinct set of characteristics that they often display. According to an assessment released by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, UAPs often exhibit unusual flight characteristics, pose a safety of flight issue, and may present a challenge to U.S. national security. Chilling, I know. But unsettling as it is, I implore you to keep those descriptions in mind as we discuss the following events. It was the second day of their trip when the twins Chuck and Charlie noticed a strange light in the sky. It was only visible for about 30 seconds, floating motionless above the trees. Then it sort of folded in on itself and disappeared from sight. Okay, I know what you're probably thinking. That doesn't at all fit the description of the national intelligence definition of a UAP. And for the most part, you'd be right. The object wasn't moving about erratically, nor was it openly threatening, which is exactly why I ask that you remain skeptically open-minded. But before we go on saying that they made it up or that their eyes were playing tricks on them, you should know that this was just the inciting incident that would ultimately lead to decades of strange events. And not to mention, these four men were not the only witnesses. According to one source, at least, the spot they were in that night was one of the more trafficked areas of the Allagash Wilderness. And as a result, a handful of other campers saw this strange light as well. There at the campground, still in the company of other curious spectators, Jim, Jack, Chuck, and Charlie must have felt safe and secure, even in spite of the bizarre sighting. Yet only two days later, once the group had traveled to a more remote location, the seemingly harmless event took a sinister turn. It was August 20th, 1976, when our four companions started a roaring bonfire on the banks of Eagle Lake. Apparently, it had been so dark on that particular evening that the group opted to build a fire 
that acted as a sort of beacon in the darkness. Then, once the embers transformed into a roaring blaze, Jack, Jim, Chuck, and Charlie pushed their canoe out onto the water for a late night fishing excursion. They had just paddled out to the center of the lake when Chuck Rack began to feel an undeniable sensation that someone was watching him from behind. So he turned around, and what he saw stopped him in his tracks. Quote, I turned over my right shoulder, and I saw this large round globe of light that looked exactly like what we had seen two nights previously. End quote. So there it was again, a bright strange light hovering above the trees. Only this time, these four men were entirely alone, left to their own devices to fend off the glowing orb. During an interview with Unsolved Mysteries, Jim Weiner described the anomaly. He likened the globe to a miniature sun that was bright enough to mimic broad daylight, which was troubling given how dark it had been when they first paddled out onto the lake. The four men stared at the glowing sphere in what I can only imagine would have been a paralysis-inducing terror. They stayed like that for a few eternity-long moments. Then Charlie pulled out his flashlight. Quote, After looking at it for what seemed like several moments, we decided to signal this thing. That's when Charlie picked up his flashlight and squeezed off a message. S.O.S. End quote. As it turned out, whoever, or should I say whatever, was operating the craft wasn't exactly fluent in Morse code. Because instead of flickering back, signaling in response, the anomaly began to approach them at a startling pace. Now in a panic, the group began to paddle back to shore. But as I'm sure you guessed, their efforts were in vain. The craft was simply moving too quickly, and within a mere matter of seconds, the light was upon them. Then everything went black. The next thing that Chuck remembers is stepping out of the canoe, which was now somehow safely back on shore. They couldn't quite remember how they got there, but they must have managed to outpace the glowing orb, right? I mean, how else did they make it back to shore, only a stone's throw away from their campsite? The men were strangely calm as they made the short walk back to camp, Maybe they were traumatized, or perhaps they were in a catatonic-like trance. There really is no way for us to say for certain, but there is one thing that we know for sure. The blazing fire that the group had built just before they departed had all but entirely burnt out. Now let's chew on that for a second. By the group's best estimate, they had only been out on the lake for about 20 minutes when the ball of light chased them back to shore. So riddle me this, why is it that when they got back to camp, the roaring bonfire they had just built had already devolved into nothing but a bed of embers? Well, as you may have guessed, that was the group's first indication that they were missing a great deal of time. 
The group spent another 10 days in the Allagash wilderness. And while they were all immensely shaken, they decided that it would be best to leave the bizarre event behind them. So that's exactly what they did for another 12 years. That is until their very own dreams forced them to face reality. The nightmares began with Jack. It was over a decade later when Jack Wiener began to experience a sort of disturbed sleep. He would climb into bed at night, and once he closed his eyes, he would be tormented by recurring visions of, well, little gray men. According to Jack's own accounts, the dreams would always begin with Jack finding himself strapped to a table in a brightly lit room, where strange creatures with long necks and large heads would poke and prod at his naked body. He would then awake, drenched in sweat, in what he described as a state of shock. Now Jack wasn't the only one who was experiencing these night terrors. In fact, his twin brother Jim was having the exact same dream. Quote, there were always certain elements of the dream that were the same. Some type of creature, being helpless, being violated, was a feeling I often woke up with. End quote. It was when the twins found out that Chuck and Charlie were plagued by similar nightly visions that the group decided to take matters into their own hands. From their perspective, Something had obviously happened to them 12 years ago on that fateful night, and they were bound and determined to get to the bottom of it. So, in 1988, Jim attended a UFO conference hosted by one Raymond Fowler. Now, as a quick aside, Fowler is an American author, known predominantly for his investigative literature on unidentified flying objects. Simply put, he was somewhat of an expert when it came to the topic of UFOs. And if his claims were true, Fowler was an abductee himself. He even went on to write a book entitled UFO Testament, Anatomy of an Abductee, which, of course, I will have linked in today's show notes. Now, it was for these reasons that Jim approached Fowler after the conference and asked him for a bit of guidance when it came to his own supposed abduction. And, well, you may want to hold on to your hats before I tell you what he suggested. Regressive hypnosis is a process by which repressed memories can be examined and explored through the use of hypnotherapy. Surely you can see where I'm going with this, right? In the weeks that followed the conference, the Allagash Four each consented to several sessions of regressive hypnosis. And as unconventional as this practice may be, it's worth mentioning that these sessions had some pretty compelling results. You see, the twins Chuck and Charlie were each separated for individual sessions with an experienced hypnotherapist. Then immediately following their session, they each participated in a polygraph test that they all passed with flying colors. 
Now again, both of these measures are relatively unconventional and unreliable ways of separating fact from fiction. But even so, these four men independently told the same harrowing story. And as it seemed, they were telling the truth. Their story went something like this. The men were taken from their canoe, lifted into the air by a pillar of white light, and brought onto some sort of advanced craft that was piloted by humanoid yet inhuman creatures. Their abductors stripped them of their clothes and strapped each of them to a cold metal table, where the beings then began to examine their naked bodies and collect samples of their skin and bodily fluids. Then the men were returned to their canoe, and their memories were erased, that is, until that very moment, when they each sat alone in a stuffy office, reliving the traumatic events. Okay, I can't lie to you. As compelling as this story may have seemed up until now, it goes without saying that these Allagash abductions have faced their fair share of scrutiny as the decades passed. So before we end today's episode, it's only fitting that I bring some skepticism back into this narrative. Namely, Chuck Rack later recanted the story that he had shared during regressive hypnosis, claiming that instead, he and his companions had made the entire story up prior to their hypnotherapy sessions in the hopes that they could make millions off of the fabricated events. Now, it's worth mentioning that a number of documentaries, shows, and books were made covering this topic. Not to mention, polygraph tests and hypnotic trances are relatively easy to fake. So maybe they did make the whole thing up in the hopes that they could strike it rich. Although even Chuck Rack had to admit, quote, we made very little, end quote. But regardless of the millions that they did or didn't make, it may also be worth noting that the Allagash 4 had a bit of a falling out as a direct result of how outspoken Chuck had been in the years following the hypnosis sessions. Now, if that wasn't enough to cast doubt onto this once close-knit group, then you should know that their story had the tendency of changing over the years. In the beginning, Interviews consisted predominantly of vague descriptions of the spacecraft and their abductors. But as the years passed, small fluff piece interviews turned into full-fledged documentaries, the most notable of which being an unsolved mystery special on the Allagash incident itself. And with the larger, more mainstream coverage, well, those vague descriptions somehow turned into more detailed accounts. Which of course begs the question, were the Allagash 4 truly tormented by a close encounter with extraterrestrial beings? Or was their story simply just another story? Quote, It's like a doctor's office. I get that it's cold like a doctor's office is cold. They put the panel over your chest, then they scrape your arms in your chest your legs and thighs. We shouldn't be here. I just, I just keep thinking. I want to be back in the canoe. End quote. 
an excerpt from the hypnotic regression of Charlie Fultz, circa 1988. This episode of Haunts was written and produced by me, Courtney Hayes. If you've been enjoying the show so far, I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review. A lot of work goes into each episode, and supporting the show in this way really helps us reach more listeners each week. It's entirely free and takes about 30 seconds, and it would genuinely mean the world to me. Also, if you're interested in learning more about today's topic, I greatly encourage you to check out the show notes section on our website at hauntscast.com. This is the location where I share my sources and provide any visual aid that may be referenced during the show. Finally, I would love to connect with you online. You can find me on Instagram at hauntscast, or you can join our email list for updates about the show. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, happy haunting. <laughs>